Your politics. Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America Politics. I'm Simon and with me as always is Toby. Hi Toby. Hi Simon. In this episode, Toby and I are going to discuss some noteworthy recent stories in American politics. It is worth stating before we start that one of the biggest stories of recent weeks, certain southern states passing legislation to make abortions legal, isn't being covered today. That's mainly because we feel we couldn't do such an important story justice in this more irreverent, freeform jazz-style episode that we're going for today. We will perhaps look at the topic of abortion and the efforts by those on the right to persecute those who support it in more depth in a future episode. But back to today's show. Our first topic of discussion is President Trump's visit to Japan. Last week, Donald Trump took his orange face and weird hair all the way to the Far East to meet with Japan's Emperor Naruhito and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. There, they discussed trade and North Korea, attended a sumo wrestling event, and spread his global message of love, equality, and tolerance. That last part might have been made up. Toby, you have close connections to the Trump White House. What can you tell us about Trump's visit? <laughs> well, I mean, from what I gathered, Trump was, was there, like you said, to, to do a trade, to talk to them about the the North Koreans. I think it's it's... What is quite interesting about this um, particular trip is that Abe seems to have tried to get on Trump's good side by understanding that, you know, like Trump is a, you know, he's a buffoon, if you like, <laughs> shiny things. So um, what Abe was able to do is he was able to name a sumo competition, the, pre- the president's or the prize for the sumo competition, the president's cup. Yeah, and like so, he thought that Trump, you know, being a sort of dancing monkey, would be uh, overjoyed, <laughs> overjoyed by this. But interestingly enough, it almost seems like Kim, um, who you know, the, the, who seems to have the same personality as Trump in, in some ways, of mm-hmm. authoritarian, uh, you know. <laughs> is, uh, troglodyte almost um, so it was very similar to, to, he knew that Trump would be sort of much more impressed by uh, you know particular wins that he had in say the context of them negotiating uh, a new nuclear arms deterrent or denuclearization than even Abe's own uh, interesting attempts to Sort of curry favor with Trump, so it's and, and in many ways like uh, Trump's trip to to the Asian world was it was almost like a testing the different political strategies of Kim and Abe and, and how they they were going to curry favor with the you know the the, the child and it is interesting it, with Abe who. Uh, from what we can understand, from what you know, the little that we know of his relationship with Trump, he does seem to, as you say, kind of very keen to kind of curry favor with him, and is very keen to speak well of the buffoon to his face, so that uh, Trump will kind of be impressed because Trump is an egomaniac, and 
Trump is kind of very happy to have his name on things and, you know, whether it's a Trump stake or whether or not it's a Trump president's cup that's, you know, for sumo wrestling, if it can sort of be made to be gold and have Trump's name on it, he'll probably be more likely to sign up for it and be happy about it. So uh, it is perhaps an interesting uh, uh, tactic to just play to his ego because obviously that would be a, a fairly obvious thing to do. And I suppose it also speaks to, like, the cynicism of the Japanese in this period. Because, like, you know, like, uh, Abe is a serious politician. Like, there's that thing called Abe-nomics. So, like, in the, like, in the 80s, like, Japan was the, was the strongest economy in the world, even by GDP per capita. And then, you know, we've almost seen, like, a lost generation of Japanese, uh, especially with very, very low growth. And Abe has tried very hard to solve those issues by doing a lot of very interesting and different things with the, his fiscal and monetary policy. So this is like a, like a, a, a very interesting statesman. And then he's being greeted by this guy who's <laughs> just a buffoon. And he has to, instead of, you know, sort of, being a wonk or thinking about you know <laughs> economy and solving this like generational uh, economic crisis he's, he's having to sort of curry favor with his buffoon so yeah it is it, it is interesting to say someone like andrew merkel who was just like astonished that this was an actual real human who'd somehow become president of the united states like, yeah, and you think about andrew merkel as well like she's a storied and serious she's a scientist she's you know she, she's a woman of intellect and she was face, <laughs> face with trump who was just like some sort of i mean it would be insulting to an orangutan to call him an orangutan i mean <laughs> it's very fair that like Many people have said that now Merkel is now the leader of the free world. Yeah, because he sort of deferred serious <laughs> thinking to the adults in the in the room, <laughs> even though you know Trump has the biggest gun in the room. <laughs> <laughs> he has the biggest gun in the room, but he might be pointed at himself for all he knows. I mean, he's, oh. it, it it as you say, you know, uh, you've got serious politicians in you know Japan and Germany and. You, you look at the contrast to what America's sending out there to the rest of the world and what he's sort of able to achieve on a, a political and uh, sort of uh, noteworthy at attention grabbing from a serious point of view. I mean, he just isn't able to sort of bring any sort of realm of seriousness to a to a room, to a, to a discussion. I mean, he is the sort of man who will you know, play a sort of lowest common denominator or will play up some sort of terrible racist background in order to sort of understand what's going on in the room. I mean, there, there's actually just on this, there's a there's always a tweet from Trump for every occasion. So, uh-huh. of course, of course, there is a, a tweet from uh, 2016 where Donald Trump goes, uh, does President Obama ever discuss the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor while he's in Japan? Thousands <laughs> of American lives lost. And <laughs> it, it, it's just, you know, that, that's that's what Trump would think a conversation with the Japanese was, was what, weren't you very sneaky back in the day? You know, and th- that's that, <laughs> that, that's how Trump would have like, Obama, he's from Hawaii. Like, <laughs> we weren't there to save these Hawaiians, and they're not even real Americans, so he should not. <laughs> like, he should be... <laughs> but that's the sort, sort. I mean, obviously, to the extent, you know, when Trump does these things, he's playing up to his base, and, you know, 
a lot of those sort of people probably do think of the Japanese as, you know, either being some sort of 1930s, 1940s sort of, I don't know, uh, viewpoint from what they were then, you know, sort of attacking Americans via uh, Pearl Harbor or maybe some sort of uh, just sort of stereotyped viewpoint of, of Asians in general. Maybe that's what he, he felt he needed to do back then. But I can't imagine Trump's probably evolved too much more from that yeah, sort of baseline. <laughs> That's like serious stuff. Like the the, if you look at a lot of like forties propaganda against the Japanese, it's mm-hmm. it's even like in terms of the war propaganda. Okay, you put aside the the characterization of the Jews in Nazi Germany, but in terms of the war propaganda, like Americans saw Germans as like they were people. We have a disagreement <laughs> with them, but they're people. The Japanese were characterized as subhuman, sneaky, deceitful. Yep. You know, and then. It's probably closer to maybe how the British or, you know, British and other nations, but Brit- probably Britain, saw things like the Africans. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, you, know, it, it, you know, these are subhuman savages who were doing things that we could never imagine ourselves doing. So Yeah, and, and you, we're not, you're not that far removed from it, you know, in, in terms of time. No, absolutely. Um, while we're on, on the subject of <laughs> Trump in Asia, I, I have to say, I know this is uh, not a visual medium we're doing right now, but if you are listening to it, please just Google Donald Trump at the sumo wrestling because it's just it's just one of those bizarre things that makes it seem like it's from some sort of cartoon send up about this idea of Donald Trump at a sumo wrestling event. But it it is there is something wonderful about it despite all the, the terrible things that he does. It just it, it did bring a smile to my face when I when I saw it. Um, yeah, he he does have a he does speak to a tradition of American buffoons going. <laughs> Overseas, it's like uh, the 20s characterization of the, you know, the the annoying American. I think it was something like that. Yeah, I'm sure the ghost of William Buckley is. Uh... And another interesting thing is that you think you look at uh, Abe and you look at Kim and you look at the different like sort of methods they use. Like Abe is used, uh, you know, we're trying to distract and trying to sort of speak to the sort of almost like uh, slightly almost like uh, buffoonish interests of the of this of this guy but then you've got kim who like they had that negotiation and kim was not happy with the results of the negotiation right and uh kim had shown the americans some plants that were or had already been removed or were inactive and say okay like we're going to we're going to remove these plants and we're going to destroy them but but kim but once Kim had lost the negotiation, once he felt that he had lost the negotiation, it's reported that he executed several of yes. the and lobbyists that were working with him. And to Trump, like Trump sees that and he goes, Okay, so I'm big strong man. Over there is big strong uh, baby man. And uh, you know, like uh, I won, but then he Kill the people who failed. Is is did he did Kim win or did I win? <laughs> and then one is wondering like is Trump, like in terms of like uh, the strategy, is the strategy when we go back to this sort of primordial, you know, uh, might makes right attitude that Trump has to these things. Did Trump lose that negotiation with Kim? I wonder how he he feels about it. 
Yeah, the the execution. I mean, it, it it's not surprising, unfortunately, to do with you know. How no, Kim is because like he's like a. I was in, like Bin Laden was like a like a almost like a comic book supervillain because he mm-hmm. would just blow up uh, buildings from like his his cavern in 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 the in the hills in Afghanistan. But like Kim, you think Kim wants to tie someone up and and send like a. a uh, a missile to to blow yeah. him up. Like it's, it's like the, the stories that they do is so so larger than life. When you hear about this, you know it's not just like oh we're just going to take you out the back and shoot you. It's you know we're gonna it, it's it's like the thing in Austin Powers where Doctor Evil wants sharks with laser beams. It's <laughs> it, it's very much sort of James Bond villain sort of thing, but it, it's real and it's incredibly nasty. It it's. It's sometimes hard to get your head around just that kind of that sort of action that another one human would take to another, but that that is the kind of thing that uh, Kim does appear to do on a you know monthly basis or weekly basis. It, I mean, it, it truly is. It's it's awful. It just it's it's hard to get your head around what 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 he does to another human being. What what well, I suppose what he does to a nation as well. But yeah. I, I suppose for him that's just kind of you know day to day business. But um. Just on North Korea, then we did uh, we did of course get uh, more uh, love between Trump and the North Koreans as far as taking on a, uh, a combined target, and this time it's Joe Biden, uh, who the uh, North Koreans described as someone who is uh, low IQ. And, uh, <laughs> he just has an average IQ for. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so um, yeah, I mean, just the idea it was it Swamp Man Joe Biden, a low IQ individual. I mean, it it it's obviously very funny in a kind of just abstract, hilarious sort of way, but it it is also kind of you know, you know, it's treason. It's Trump's going to take the side of a North Korean dictator and that government over like fellow Americans. I mean, it it's again absurd and just crazy, but. At the same time, it's Donald Trump, so it's kind of just standard at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's almost good in a way, you know, because you had the Republicans and they would, like, bring in uh, Benjamin Netanyahu to sort of point his finger at Obama. And that sort of felt almost fine because you you were dealing with, uh, you know, different politicians. But really, I mean, it was like what Trump is doing now, isn't it? It like attacking a member of uh, the American Senate um, and an attack from an, a North Korean sort of dictator that Trump takes, goes to Twitter, and then he validates and verifies it just so that he can, can help him uh, take out his own political opponents or mm-hmm. point his own political opponents. I mean, it is... It seems like something that's totally absurd, but I, I've always felt that the Republicans have always been sort of coming towards this or trading in this kind of water. But Trump always brings light to sort of <laughs> things that you felt were okay. Yeah, Trump in, in many ways is the kind of natural evolution of what the Republicans have been trending towards over the years. You know, this idea of will be moralistic in saying certain things and having certain policies, but at the same time, they will just completely go back on that when they need, you know, things to completely suit their own self-interest. And, you know, 
if ever there was a case of uh, party over country, you know, that is the case of, of the Republicans right now and, you know, the Tories in, in Britain right now to a certain extent as well. You know, this idea that, you know, Republicans build themselves on this sort of idealised sort of 1950s, you know, uh, patriotic American style. This is what we need to get back to. This is what America should be. But at the same time, you know, they'd, they'd rather, you know, they'd rather kind of, betrayed the country on a global uh, scale rather than you know lose an election or anything like that you know they'd rather get into bed with you know russia or north korea or whoever it is rather than you know let the democrats win an election because that's somehow worse it's just it's it's fantastic and it's both terrible and scary yeah north korea or russia uh, yeah (laughs) well i mean that kind of leads us nicely on to our next point uh which is discussing joe biden himself um who uh, segue into a segue i'm just moving through custard as i try and move us from one topic to another uh, just... joe biden. <laughs> joe biden we have joe on the line uh no we don't have joe on the line unfortunately he's far too busy coming up with mon- mundane uh, policies um trying to straddle the uh sort of very central left and the somewhat central right uh biden is i don't know if it's fair to say he's the leading candidate for the 2020 uh democratic race but he's certainly one of the leading candidates if he's not already out in front um toby what are your thoughts on joe biden this last week and how he's positioned himself for uh 2020 and for the democratic race well i think um Joe Biden, many polls have come out and show that Joe Biden has consolidated a lead in the polls. And I think, feel that Joe Biden previously in other runs for the presidency, you know, he ran against, he, he, he ran against um, in the 1988. And I feel that he was he's always been prone to gaffes there was that thing about joe biden in the 80s actually stealing a speech word for word and then once that came out you know he had to <laughs> uh, with his tail between his legs and sort of quit the race but joe biden now i think people on around joe biden understand this they understand that he he's been prone to gaffes Previously, and Joe Biden actually in Iowa and New Hampshire has tried to um, sort of develop a strategy of actually not going to a lot of rallies or being too involved in politics. It's it's you know it's the sort of the complacent leader. That's the position that I think feel that Biden has right now. For me, I think the probably the two most interesting things with Biden right now is. A, where he stands at this moment in time and where he'll stand later on. So is Joe Biden the front runner because, you know, vice president and he's kind of got a large media exposure and he didn't run in the previous election, which obviously uh, is not the same for certain of the other leading candidates such as Bernie who did. And so is is he sort of taking up the Jet Bush position of a leading candidate with some name recognition for now? And then once we actually get into politics and discussion, we actually see his poll numbers dwindle and we get a politician who perhaps has 
more meaningful politics and more meaningful policies will start to take over. That's interesting. And then on the flip side of that, will he actually become even more popular because there will be some in the democratic race who think actually rather than trying to vote for someone who I like and who I think have progressive ideas, what I'm going to do is I'm going to vote for the person who I think would appeal most to stupid America and who will appeal most to borderline Republican America. And they'll do, they'll play the sort of electability card, which can be, can be an issue because suddenly you go into electability card. And then if that doesn't work, you've picked a kind of a candidate without substance. I'm, I'm not sure about your thoughts on either of those things right now, Toby. Yeah. I mean, Joe Biden is what he's 18 point five points clear in real clear politics and he's leading in in sort of every poll right now. So and then he and then against Trump in the head to heads, he has I mean Bernie's quite good against Trump. Ooh. Toby? You appear to have lost Toby. Well we lost Toby for a second, but the good news is he's back. So uh Toby was just uh, speaking on uh Trump uh Biden and Bernie. So uh back to Toby. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that Bernie as well, he is doing well in a head-to-head with Trump, although, you know, most models right now seem to suggest that Trump, given the sort of the increase in GDP and the, the, the value of the stock market, will be re-elected. But overall, those two are doing the best, and Biden is doing better than Bernie, so he's doing the best on in every indicator so far. But what I also think is quite interesting, and I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, Simon, is that within the conservative media space, Biden seems to be getting treated a little nicer than other candidates. Yeah, it's it's interesting that I think with. With moving on from 2016, what we saw obviously was we saw decades of um, abuse built up towards uh, towards Hillary, and she was kind of preloaded with this baggage, which even if she, you know, was the greatest candidate on earth from a political point of view, from a kind of um, uh, policy point of view, she was always going to run into trouble as far as just the baggage she was taking with her after all these years, and I think. You contrast that now, as you say, to someone who is more palatable to the right, to someone who has, for all his flaws, I mean, he has kind of worked both aisles. He has appealed on Republican um, legislation and, you know, he he, he he voted for the Iraq war. So, you know, what more could the, the GOP want? Um, so I, I think he's definitely someone who m- moderate Republicans, both on the political spectrum, as far as working in White uh, in uh, Washington and those who uh, will be voting in twenty twenty, I think they can sort of get if if not get behind, sort of at least stomach the idea of uh, Joe Biden, and especially if Trump continues to play up certain more outlandish aspects of his behavior and of his uh, his policy approach, then. Yeah, I could de- definitely see see Biden getting a certain amount of votes and a certain amount of traction within that base, but I think I think what certainly twenty sixteen showed was that they were looking 
the electorate was looking for change and they were looking for someone different and you know that's why many people myself included thought that bernie was simply a better candidate for 2016 than hillary because hillary was the wrong candidate for the wrong time and perhaps if bernie had gone on to uh, face uh, trump we wouldn't we wouldn't have a Trump presidency now. Now, whether or not in 2020 that same um, hostility towards a more established candidate will be there, or whether or not we will actually swing back towards sort of more the centre and people will be actually, we've had four years of Trump and that's probably probably enough as far as an outlandish, buffoonish character is concerned. Maybe we'll just have a sort of sensible grown-up in the room again. That's hard to tell right now, and I, I do wonder if we will start to understand that a little bit more as the democratic race continues and if we see i mean bernie's going to be popular with the people he's popular with and trump is going to be vulnerable to a certain extent for for bernie because bernie can you know get to people that trump simply can't but biden yeah that's that's going to be an interesting one and if he can take away swathes of Republican voters, then that's, you know, that could be the difference between winning and losing. But at the moment, I'm still a little bit skeptical on that. Yeah, I mean, like, it's interesting because if you look at a lot of the sort of uh, left-wing media and you, you look at, like, Mehdi Hassan's opinion of Biden, they will go to Biden's votes in the 80s and 90s, Biden was vociferously against busing. He was one of these Democrats who never, um, sort of in, in his state, never would support the idea of busing black children into uh, sort of white schools. Mm -hmm. And he was also against, I mean, he was also... Um, he also sort of put a lot of pressure on Anita Hill when Clarence Thomas was going to be uh, sort of sworn in in the Supreme Court when she came in and, and said that, you know, this guy had abused his power and sort of uh, abused me physically or mentally. Um, Biden did not let other people, he let her eventually come in and testify, but he did not let other people uh, other sort of witnesses come or other people who had had problems with Clarence Thomas come and, and talk about that as well. I mean, and, and then he supported the crime bill. Um, I mean, not even just supported the crime bill. Bill Clinton's come out and talked about the the 90s uh, crime bill and said that, you know, it, it did increase um, the prison state, basically. Mm -hmm. And Biden has actually, he was on a bus um, sort of with a reporter and Biden defended, the, the, he defended the parts of the bill that today might play to, you know, the, the, the protection of Women's Act, uh, the fact that there, you know, were some other aspects of the bill that might appeal to Democratic voters today, but he was the main champion of that bill in the past. And Hillary, you know, I mean, Hillary had significant baggage herself, but she was, she was the first lady when she says super credit. She wasn't a politician. Biden was the, the leading edge behind that um, that legislation. So, but then if you go to the National Review and if you go to writers in the New York Times like Brett Stevens, I mean, Stevens is the New York Times, like, 
he's basically a New York Times conservative. Him and David Brooks are like known for being, and, and Val Fow as well, known for being the conservatives on the New York Times staff. And uh, he's defended the crime bill and, and in a piece and used it as a platform to defend Joe Biden. And David French as well. French in the National Review is considered to be, you know, like a intellectual and ideological champion. He's looked at Biden and says, you know, Biden's very much against the the new left's uh, social justice warriors. Biden is not. Biden is supporting, you know, conservative legislation like the crime bill, like his his um, stance against busing as well. So it does seem like, and, and I wonder, like, when you look at, like, other conservatives in, say, the Atlantic and former, you know, Weekly Standard writers, like, other conservatives of that ilk, like, they're very much prepared to support Biden. And I think, like, Biden would have slotted quite easily into the the party of H.W. Bush in the, in the 90s, and he, he tried to sort of frame himself that way. And it's interesting to see that that cast of Republicans is very much happy to sort of support Biden in a way because he's not significantly sort of far away from their views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we we could probably spend, I mean, to be honest, I I just love, (laughs) I love the election period. I I, I love when we kind of start narrowing down, um, you know, candidates and we can start looking at how those things develop. But Sadly, we probably could spend another half an hour on Joe and the other candidates, but we were actually going to move on to our, our final topic of conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I have to say that, actually, th- there is a difference because there are other sort of write-ups in the National Review, like Biden is definitely not a centrist, uh, some you know crazed op-ed writer who also writes for, or who also appears on Fox News has gone down in a very detailed way and looked at Biden's policies or Biden's votes that might be seen as moderate and as and as highlighted as, as signs of, you know, Biden being a far left radical. So, I mean, you know, uh, given that the conservative movement and Fox News um, is, has been made to twist and warp reality, but, you know, I mean, against Trump, there is still... It's it's very easy. I mean, and you know they do it against Nancy Pelosi. You know, they, and it's very it's going to be very easy to switch on the machine, uh, the Fox News machine again. Although, given that a lot of these op-ed writers and conservative writers do see the appeal of Biden, I wonder how far that will play with um, the conservative audience. Yeah, absolutely, and I suppose um, we will just have to see how that develops over the, the coming weeks and months and whether or not Joe Biden is able to get hold of a, a narrative where he is seen as both electable to the left and the right. Um, that will, will be an interesting interesting one to, to see how that unfolds. Uh, your mention of Nancy Pelosi does actually move us on to our, our final topic of conversation for today. Uh, and probably maybe the most interesting one, at least from the perspective of understanding American news and politics in 2019, um, a fake news video uh, did the rounds on, on Facebook. Uh, it appeared to show Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi drunk at a public event. Uh, this video was, of course, doctored um, and was fake, but uh, 
those uh, by those wishing to smear Pelosi. Um, but despite what we know from uh, Facebook role in spreading false information during the 2016 election, the social media giant did not take the fake video down and instead buried its head in the sand and played the old uh, we don't police the information passed on our site, it's kind of up to our users to uh, proceed as, the, as they wish with whatever information they pass on, uh, which is uh, pretty dangerous but uh, pretty expected I'd say. Uh, Toby, what are your thoughts on the viral video and Facebook's response to it? Well, it's, it's super interesting because Facebook is it, Facebook obviously has this policy that what they'll do is that they will uh, introduce potential like fact checking um, sort of sort of indentation on a video to show like this is not real, but actually. <laughs> Um, a lot of media sort of academics feel like that stuff actually makes some people who, you know, have, you know, of a conspiratorial mindset feel that actually it's more real, given that Facebook have, you know, written it up as, you know, radical or, or weird or, or, you know, sort of odd. And I think that um, the video is really interesting because it's, it's sort of slowed down, but then... And in a, in a slow down video, you, you would watch it and you would feel like uh, actually, you know, this is obviously slowed down. But the although this is low, low tech um, sort of slow mo, it's it also slows down the pitch. So it, re it remains to be seen that it actually is uh, Nancy Pelosi because it, it's quite consistent with the way she talks. So it's very it's actually quite cleverly done despite being uh, <laughs> uh, low-grade. Yeah, I, I think what, what's interesting as well is that Facebook, as part of their response, said that, well, we use algorithms to sort of downplay videos that uh, maybe are uh, maybe slightly disingenuous so we can kind of downplay how, how their reach and how much they'll actually impact things. But obviously that is, you know, <laughs> that that's kind of what they say as to what actual... Uh, whether or not they negated the impact of this video considering how widely it spread from what we can tell is um well we're kind of dubious on that to say the least i think what what this highlights is how interesting the role specifically facebook because of the audience it plays to how it's able to pierce media and the connection between media and um the home in a way which maybe even television at its peak was unable to do you know we we've talked on um, other show before <laughs> about uh, about network and you know i'm mad as hell and being able to connect what's what's going on between someone who's you know um speaking in a very um impassioned and uh political way but who is able to get that across and uh speak to the people who are watching but even then it's very much as a televisional you tune it in at this time you know it's someone broadcasting that you perhaps don't know on a personal basis whereas facebook is built around the idea of people that you know sharing information with you and it it almost feels as if it's it's more primal as if someone has sort of got this piece of information which you really need to see and is taking it back to the campfire for you to share amongst his friends and is able to you know tell you the truth that you know the real media isn't going to isn't going to provide for you and I think Facebook along with Twitter and other social media platforms 
we know how dangerous it is right now, but I'm not sure we're, I'm not even sure now we're really getting the picture of what this disinformation is actually doing to the Western world right now. And we're in a really dangerous position. And I don't think it's unfair to, uh, to exaggerate just how, how dangerous a position we are in for future elections and for things like um, the next time we have a, I don't know, a Scottish referendum or another Brexit vote or the 2020 election and the, this idea of false information being spread in a way which is far harder to police than if you just have, I don't know, a news channel that lives that has to live up to certain uh, broadcasting standards. I, I don't know, Toby, are you as worried as I am or are you kind of taking it more in your stride? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the blood pressure. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I do feel like you, you, like, what you said is actually kind of far out because it's like at some point in time you had people, and I think Adam Curtis has really talked about it, it's like you had a sort of a group of people, they come out of, like, Ivy League universities or Oxbridge or whatever, and then and they go on to be producers at the, you know, the main news channels. And then they sort of set about um, aggregating information in a way that is supported by themselves as an institution that is, you know, is respected and verified. But, you know, like we sort of democratized that and, 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 you know, and there is probably like some good to that in some way. I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're out of the period where it does feel like it is good, but we that happen like now you can your friends or your neighbors can aggregate information to you that you know might be true or might come from these uh false sites we did see in the around the 2000 especially late 2015 to just you know accelerating into the election but um there was this increase in misinformation on facebook and twitter and like some people have seen that the aggregation of this misinformation has gone down. Facebook has used the algorithm in a way. I mean, it's still large. It's still everyone uh, says that it's still, you know, tons of, 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 of shit. But it has gone down a little bit. And it, it seems like we are in a point in time, you know, within Facebook as a corporation, uh, people who work in information security in Facebook, regulators at Facebook and then within academia, then in the government, like who is going to come together and create a system that allows us to better sort of deal with this kind of information. It, it, I mean, it is, I mean, if you, if you thought about it too long, you, you might, you know, go crazy because it, it is a, a big problem. I mean, even beyond this, there's new technology that, that allows, you know, People, you know, because Nancy Pelosi, her pitch and her, you know, her voice and her pitch are slowed and the video is slowed. And it's, you know, it's done by someone who's who obviously seems to be quite good at this. Um, you know, a lot of people were swindled. There's a lot of those Twitter um, posts about it and people, you know, like conservatives who have that bias, like, oh, Nancy Pelosi, she's, she's a San Francisco Democrat, as everyone says, you know, she's drunk and she's disgusting and depraved and this is how she reacts but um yeah i mean i think even now there's like technology that can 
alter people's faces and use their own voices or use uh, sort of information from their own voices to say things. So now we're in a position where, you know, like there's going to be so much manipulation. It isn't just going to be Russian bots or like low tech nerd somewhere, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. sort of, yeah, altering an anti Pelosi speech patterns. It's going to be, you know, massive manipulation. And are we going to be in a position? I mean, I think like um, the author, Jane, is a Jamie Bartlett wrote The People versus Tech. And, and the whole, like, the whole theory behind that, or the whole theory behind this this thing, is that does the new access to this new technology give um, both the wonks and then both like rich, cynical people like Donald Trump? Does it give them an outsized power in democracy? And can democracy even handle this technology? Like that's a that's an actual existential question that needs to be answered, and we don't have the answer yet. That's a very fair question. I mean, to some extent, you know, the way that war changed around uh, World War One and World War Two when it became industrialized and how that, that changed warfare, we are essentially now changing democracy to do with how we're able to uh, provide information, whether it be fact or uh, fiction, to, uh, you know, directly into people's homes. And it, it, is, it is different to how we had democracy prior to the internet and prior to social media and you look at someone like elizabeth warren who is you know promoting this idea of breaking up the big tech giants and you know is that is that pipe dream is that something that's inevitable in the decades to fall you know we're very much at a if we're not a, at a crossroads we're at an early enough junction that we can see we could see various different paths happening now I, i'm always skeptical as to whether I mean, or not just look at one uh like so I mean, just look at one like uh simon like the thing about um elizabeth warren is that i mean she sees that you know like these tech giants are political uh issue but if you look at the regulators within facebook and twitter like they're under economic pressure like they know that the this kind of information um, and especially the the sort of homebodied boomer, early Gen Xer, um, sort of older people who go on these websites, like they are a big income uh, space for for these for especially for Facebook and especially for Facebook advertising. Like mm-hmm. you can download some of this stuff, but downloading some of this stuff might hurt your you know your bottom line, and it's like. I mean, can we leave it to them, yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, we could always introduce my policy, which is anyone over the age of 35 just shouldn't be allowed to vote, but um, I haven't been able to get much traction on that. And also the fact that I'm now 30 means that I'm very slowly going to be moving out the window where I should be able to vote. So, um, yeah, that, I'll basically be leaving leaving decisions up to you, Toby, from now on. If that's okay. Are you okay to, to run the country by yourself? Well, you, you can't vote, but you can. I guess you you you'll move away from voting to running the country. That'd be that'd be an odd system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no one over the age of thirty-five can vote, but uh, correspondingly, no one under the age of thirty-five can be in power. So, 
maybe maybe we can uh, bring it together that way. Uh, okay, well, um, Toby, have you got any more thoughts on Facebook, Nancy Pelosi, or Big Tech and Elizabeth Warren? No, I think uh, I'll leave my my thoughts. You know, I mean, obviously, we we have the impressions of America here, and like over the next you know few hundred episodes, we'll <laughs> probably have the audio book of this stuff set up. So, you know, I have other thoughts, but I'll, I'll leave them to you know my my future uh, podcasting escapades. Okay, well, I look forward to the book of this episode coming out in the near future, Toby. I'm uh, sure you'll get a forward from Elizabeth Warren as part of that uh, part of that book deal. Uh, well, well there's a good chance that I will be, uh, you know, in in America, and you know, I'm I, I'm picking senators. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I always knew you were the perhaps power behind the throne when it came to the Warren campaign, Toby. I'll tell you about liberalism, a love story. As a caption. <laughs> head, head of the Okay. Yeah, head, get out of the <laughs> Great. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining me today, Toby. Uh, it's been really enjoyable. Uh, again, something slightly different for this Impression of America Politics podcast, uh, which is one of the nice things about doing this type of podcast. We can kind of freewheel it a bit more. Uh, you can, of course, listen to um, our other uh, podcast, which is just Impressions of America. Um, we will be having a new show on uh, one of those two podcasts in the near future. And uh, until then, uh, yeah, keep enjoying using Facebook and trying to spread false information like Toby and I will be doing for the rest of the tonight. Uh, from Toby and myself, good night. Uh, good night.